Hello my lovelies and welcome to another episode of Primed for Crime. I'm your host Liv and I'm very excited to have you here and hope you enjoy today's case. And I'm sorry for no episode last week. I came down with that horrible flu or whatever is going around. Um, Not sure it's COVID but it definitely did feel like when I had COVID. So I've literally just been in bed for the last week. So I do apologise but I am starting to feel a lot better. Definitely ready for Christmas. So I've got a little Christmas episode for you today. Um, So today's case actually takes place on Christmas Eve 2002 when Jean Hulava and her two daughters and granddaughter were meant to be driving the two hours to her mother's house for Christmas. However, when they don't arrive by Christmas morning, alarms start to ring and a welfare check is carried out. However, when an officer arrives at the house, he makes a discovery that will haunt this family for a lifetime. Now, before we get into the case, I just want to state that everything I talk about today is information I found online and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. And today's case does involve mention of sexual assault and very brief mention of suicide. So if this is something that you're not comfortable listening to at the moment, then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So, let's begin. This is the Hulava Family Murders. Jean Hulava, aged 43, and her two daughters, Elizabeth, aged 15, who went by the nickname of Izzy, Victoria, aged 20, along with Victoria's nine-month-old little girl, Madison, were on their way to a Christmas Eve dinner at Jean's parents' home in Jonestown, PA, which is about two and a half hours away from their home in Middletown. Now, this was a family tradition, and Jean, her husband Ernest, and their two girls would normally make this journey to Jean's parents, and they were called Joe and Mary Bittman. And they'd do this every year, you know, they'd go, have dinner the night before Christmas, then stay over to open gifts in the morning. However, this year would be a little bit different because Jean and Ernest were separated and they'd separated that summer after 20 years of marriage. So it was just going to be Jean and the girls this time. So Joe and Mary were waiting for Jean, Izzy, Victoria and Madison to arrive and they were a little bit late, which I mean, they could just be stuck in traffic. So not to worry, they should be there soon. However, the later it got, the more worried Jean's parents were and calls to Jean's house were not answered or returned, which would indicate that they would be on the road. However, Mary was so worried that she actually contacted the police and asked if there was any accidents on the highway that Jean would have been travelling on and she even called the Middletown police to see if they could do a welfare check. But... The dispatcher could tell them nothing and instead told her to call back the next day if the family did not arrive by the morning. Mary tried to stay calm and, you know, again, they could have just run into some traffic and hopefully they would arrive soon. But when Jean and the girls failed to arrive by Christmas morning, Mary called the Middletown Police Department again and demanded a welfare check be done at Jean's home in the 800 block of North Union Street. 
So at seven o'clock on Christmas morning, Sergeant Robert Givler of the Middletown Police Department had just arrived on duty and he was contacted by dispatch to conduct a welfare check at Jean Hulava's home. So when Officer Givler pulls up to the home, he doesn't see anything suspicious or out of the ordinary and he proceeds to walk up to the front door where he knocks and tries to ring the bell but there's no answer. He tries to look through the windows but he can't really see much so instead decides to try the back of the house where there might be a better view. So as he walks around the back he notices that the windows and the garage doors have been broken which to him seemed a little bit odd as it would anybody. So he grabbed the garage door to see if it was still on the latch but it lifted up straight away. It lifted up so it wasn't locked. He sees that the family car is still in the garage and decides to knock on the door that leads into the home from the garage, but when he knocks, the door just falls open. Officer Givler then enters the home, announcing himself, but no response when he calls out. The door leads to a little hallway and as he walks through the archway off the kitchen, he discovers a female body lying on the floor and she is cold to the touch. Backup soon arrives and the main job is to clear the home and secure the scene whilst they wait for the homicide detectives and the crime scene unit to arrive. So as they are clearing out the bottom floor, they hear a noise coming from upstairs, which seemed odd. So with guns drawn, they slowly climb the stairs, just not knowing what they're about to face. And when they get up in the upstairs hallway, they come across another deceased female victim with a baby sitting in the crook of her arms. Now, Officer Givler continues his search while the other officers take the baby downstairs whilst he waits for an ambulance to make sure the baby doesn't have any injuries. Thankfully, baby Madison only suffered from dehydration after being left alone in the house for almost 30 hours until officers discovered her. A short while after, Officer Givler discovers a third female victim lying across the bed in the bedroom at the end of the hall. Now, it was found that all three women had been shot dead with a single shot from a small calibre weapon. Jean Hulava had been shot in the head and was the first victim that was found in the kitchen. Police believe that she was making her morning coffee when the shooter snuck up and fired a single shot and her coffee filter fell into the nearby trash can. And it was theorised that the timeline was somewhere between 4am, somewhere around that time. Now the second victim was 20 year old Victoria who was shot in the top of her head. Now, police theorised that she was crouched over to protect her baby when the shot was fired, which... You know, I can't even imagine how she must have been feeling knowing that, you know, her baby was right there, you know, doing everything that she could do in that moment to just protect that child and, you know, ultimately ended her life. And she was found lying right outside the bedroom door where the third victim was found. Izzy was found lying across her bed with a single gunshot wound to her left eye. And it was known that the shot was up close and there were actually burn marks around her eye. Now, the police also believe that she grabbed the barrel of the gun when it was fired due to burn marks on her hands. However, no weapon was found at the home. 
So a crime scene officer found that a group of wires at the back of the house had been cut and this was probably done so no one could call for help, which is really sinister and does kind of scream premeditated. So as with any investigation, those closest to the victims are the first people looked into. So of course, Ernest Hulava was now a prime suspect. So Jean and Ernest had separated in the summer of 2002 due to allegations Victoria and Izzy had made against their own father. Now Victoria had kept such a terrible secret for years and that would be that her father had been molesting her and she hoped that if she kept the secret then he wouldn't touch her sister Izzy. Now she had a conversation with her aunt where she said it was happening to Izzy and that he promised it wouldn't happen to her and when Victoria discovered this they both went to the police and filed formal charges and this is when Jean filed for a protection from abuse against her husband Ernest which resulted in him leaving the home and was not allowed to come anywhere near the home or the women per his bail release conditions. He had been freed in July 2002 on a $100,000 bail pending trial. Now this trial was to be held in January 2003 which was just two weeks after the murders and during this time he had moved back to his parents home in Cambria County. So detectives travelled the three hours to Cambria to question Ernest and he was brought into the local police station by his brother Scott where Ernest told police that he had heard about the murders from family members but had no knowledge of who could have done it. His alibi was that he and his brother were out spotting deer and coyotes in the local mountains of Cambria County. They were out there from about 2am till 9.10am and his brother Scott also gave this same alibi. Other individuals that were looked into included Frankie Ramos who is Madison's father. Now they had somewhat had a conscientious relationship when they lived together in Berks County and police had actually been called to the home before because Frankie didn't believe that Madison was his until a paternity test proved otherwise. But his alibi for the 24th was verified and he was soon cleared. He was still in the Reading area which is about an hour and a half from Middleton. Now Turner Higgins was another suspect and he had an off again on again relationship with Victoria and they had experienced a recent falling out. At one point Turner who worked for a locksmith changed all the locks on the home at Jean's request but Turner's alibi was validated and he was also cleared. So this meant that the police were back to looking at direct family members. So search warrants were obtained for the Hulava residence in Cambria County and for Scott's vehicle. Now detectives found a notebook in Scott's trunk and in there was a note in Scott's handwriting that says, quote, we were out spotting deer and coyotes, end quote. Which, I mean, it does seem a little bit suspicious. I'm not sure why he'd have it written in there or what like especially in that sort of phrasing we were out it just doesn't really add up 
and the police had the same suspicions so the pair were actually brought back into the police station where Ernest asserted his right to remain silent and contacted his attorney who he left with but Scott on the other hand kept to the rehearsed alibi but after being shown crime scene photos of his sister-in-law and two nieces he just broke down and confessed everything he knew. He told police that he drove Ernest to his former Middletown home in the early hours of December 20, 2002, sorry, not 2022. So the story kind of goes that they were out drinking when Ernest said that he wanted to go to Middletown to get his dog and Scott decided to drive him even though he knew that Ernest's bail conditions meant that he couldn't be anywhere near Middletown. But he drove him anyway, and he said that they arrived close to 4am when Ernest told Scott to park down the road and stay put in the car. This is when Ernest got some stuff from the back seat of the car and took off down the road towards the house. He then arrived about 10 minutes later and told Scott to drive and head back to Cambria County, but not to their home but instead further up north into the woods. Now, according to Scott, Ernest was in a, quote, agitated state, end quote, when he came back to the car and wouldn't tell him what had happened. When they got there, Ernest left the car and walked straight into the woods with a pistol and a shotgun, but when he returned, the guns were nowhere to be seen. So Scott agreed to take the police to the area that Ernest had got out of the car with the guns. Now state police cadets searched every inch of this massive acreage and after a while police were about to call off the search but then an officer looks down between some rocks and saw something orange and that would be the rusted barrel of a pistol. And when police ran the serial number, they found that the gun belonged to none other than Ernest Hulava's mother's brother. Bit of a mouthful, but basically it belonged to his uncle. And ballistic testing showed that this was in fact the murder weapon. Ernest Hulava was charged with three counts of first degree murder. And the state is now also seeking the death penalty. Scott, on the other hand, is charged as an accomplice and held without bail, and in a plea deal, Scott agrees to plead guilty to three counts of third-degree murder and is given a 12 to 25-year sentence before he becomes eligible for parole. Whilst in jail, awaiting trial, Ernest attempts to hire a hitman through another prisoner called James Meddings. But a hitman for who exactly? It's all very, very strange. Well, he actually wants to kill Frankie Ramos and make it look like a suicide. And Frankie's fake suicide note would say that he was the actual killer. I mean, needless to say, and thank God, the prisoner does tell the authorities and they were able to get a DEA agent from West Virginia to pose as the alleged hitman whilst authorities recorded them discussing the killing using a code word, tank, to stand for Frankie. So I cannot believe he thought he'd get away with that, but he basically tried to push it all on Frankie and get him killed so he could get away, which 
obviously wasn't going to work. At the trial, the three counts of murder were combined with the sexual offences and the criminal solicitation related to having Frankie killed. Scott testified for the prosecution, stating that when Ernest moved back home, he said that he would shoot Jean. Then Victoria and Izzy's testimony from their preliminary hearing is admitted under the forfeiture excuse me if I'm pronouncing that wrong, by wrongdoing exception to the hearsay rule. And the theory was that they were basically killed to prevent their testimony. So Ernest was convicted on three counts of first-degree murder, killing prosecution witnesses, conspiracy, reckless endangerment, which would have been um, leaving Madison in the house, burglary and criminal solicitation. But he was acquitted for the sexual offences and the jury sentenced Ernest to three death sentences. Now, according to a Press and Journal article by Jeff Lewis posted in 2014, the Pennsylvania Superior Court was... It ruled on January 10th, 2014, that the sexual abuse charges against Hulava would stay on his criminal arrest record. Although a jury acquitted him, they only did so because he had murdered the very witnesses that they were to testify against. The Superior Court noted that the sexual abuse charges are, quote, oh god, oh god, I can't pronounce this, (laughs) inextricably, inextricably, I'm really sorry, basically that the tides to the murders and Hulava would not be entitled to relief that would basically expunge his record. <laughs> I'm really sorry, my brain is really not with it. Um, but it was still on, but unfortunately he was he was acquitted of that. Um, so Ernest was seeking relief, basically, stating that having these charges on his record would kind of hinder his chances of proving his innocence in the future. So in January 2019, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court upheld Hulava's convictions, dismissing over a dozen issues that he raised on appeal. His state appeals have been exhausted, so now it turns to the federal appeal process. But as far as I am aware, Ernest is still alive, aged 61, and remains in a county prison whilst Scott was actually moved to a different one in Cumberland County for his own safety. And that does conclude today's episode. I know it's not been the longest, it's quite a short one, but it really is a tragic case. And honestly, my heart goes out to Jean, Izzy, Victoria and Madison, as well as all other family and friends involved and affected. And, you know, all I can think is, you know, thank God Mary realised that something was wrong and contacted the police immediately. You know, if she hadn't, then, you know, God knows when their bodies and poor Madison would have been discovered. You know, she absolutely did the right thing. And the girls also did do the right thing by reporting all the abuse that they had gone through at the hands of a man they thought that they could trust. You know, if you or anybody you know is going through something like this, you know, being abused sexually, physically, mentally, 
then just please know that there are people out there that can help and it is okay to speak out. I'm actually going to put some links in the show notes so please feel free to have a look if you feel you need help or advice with anything and that is everything from me. I hope you all have a really really lovely Christmas. Whatever you may be doing I hope it's filled with all the love, joy and if you are struggling or alone this Christmas and need some support there um, there will be some other links in the show notes to help you through this holiday season but apart from that I hope everybody has a lovely time and I will see you later so bye